Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be Alma, chapter 24. So remember that uh, that the, a lot of the Lamanites have been converted, and they've now called themselves anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And also remember that the Amalekites and the Amulonites were not converted, except for one of the Amalekites. So now we'll get into chapter 24, verse 1. And it came to pass that the Amalekites and the Amulonites and the Lamanites who were in the land of Amulon, and also in the land of Helam, and who were in the land of Jerusalem, and in fine in all the land round about, who had not been converted and had not taken upon them the name of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, were stirred up by the Amalekites and by the Amulonites. Remember the Amulonites uh, are the priests of Noah, so that are, that's who those people are, to anger against their brethren, and their hatred became exceedingly sore against them, even insomuch that they began to rebel against their king, insomuch that they would not that he should be their king. Therefore they took up arms against the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. Now the king conferred the kingdom upon his son, and he called his name Anti-Nephi-Lehi. And the king died in that selfsame year that the Lamanites began to make preparations for war against the people of God. Now when Ammon and his brethren and all those who had come up with him saw the preparations of the Lamanites to destroy their brethren, they came forth to the land of Midian. And there Ammon met all his brethren, and from thence they came to the land of Ishmael, that they might hold a council with Lamoni and also with his brother Anti-Nephi-Lehi, what they should do to defend themselves against the Lamanites. Now there was not one soul among all the people who had been converted unto the Lord that would take up arms against their brethren. Nay, they would not even make any preparations for war. Yea, and also their king commanded them that they should not. Now these are the words which he said unto the people concerning the matter. I thank my God, my beloved people, that our great God has in goodness sent these our brethren, the Nephites, unto us to preach unto us and to convince us of the traditions of our wicked fathers. And behold, I thank my great God that he has given us a portion of his spirit to soften our hearts that we have opened a correspondence with these brethren, the Nephites. And behold, I also thank my God that by opening this correspondence, we have been convinced of our sins and of the many murders which we have committed. We do know that there are murders committed by Gentiles for which they are at least, uh, that, that they at least can repent, be baptized and receive a remission of their sins. And that was by Elder McConkie. And I also thank my God, yea, my great God, that he hath granted unto us that we might repent of these things and also that he hath forgiven us of those many, our many sins and murders. Because of the false traditions of their fathers before their conversion, these Lamanites had taken life in unrighteous wars. Though such needless killing is a sin in the gravest magnitude, it is not the same as the willful and premeditated taking of life that, in the United States system of jurisprudence, is called first-degree murder, or that is spoken of in the scriptures as being a sin unto death, meaning that its perpetrators cannot, even, though, even through repentance, obtain a glory greater than that of the celestial kingdom in the worlds to come. And that was by Millet McConkie, continuing verse 10, which we have committed and taken away the guilt from our hearts through the merits of his son. And now behold, my brethren, since it has been all that we could do, as we were the most lost of all mankind, to repent of all our sins and the many murders which we had committed, and to get God to take away, to take them away from our hearts 
for it was all we could do to repent sufficiently before God that he would take away our stain. Now, my best beloved brethren, since God hath taken away our stains and our swords have become bright, let them, let, then let us stain our swords no more with the blood of our brethren. Behold, I say unto you, nay, let us retain. In this context, retain is used in the sense of holding back. They are not retaining their swords in the sense of maintaining possession, but rather they are restraining them from use. Continuing verse 13, our swords that we that they be not stained with the blood of our brethren, for perhaps if we should stain our swords again, they can no more be washed bright through the blood of the Son of our great God, which shall be shed for the atonement of our sins. And the great God had has had mercy on us and made these things known unto us that we might not perish, yea, and he has made these things known unto us beforehand, because he loveth our souls as well as he loveth our children. Therefore, in his mercy, he doth visit us by his angels, that the plan of salvation might be made known unto us, as well as unto future generations. Oh, how merciful is our God, and, how, and now behold, since it has been as much as we could do to get our stains taken away from us, and our swords are made bright, let us hide them away, that they may be kept bright as a testimony to our God at the last day, or at the day that, he shall, that we shall be brought to stand before him to be judged that we have not stained our swords in the blood of our brethren since he imparted his word unto us and has made us clean thereby. And now, my brethren, if our brethren seek to destroy us, behold, we will hide away our swords. Yea, even we will bury them deep in the earth that they may be bright, be kept bright as a testimony that we have never used them at the last day. And if our brethren destroy us, behold, we shall go to our God and shall be saved. And now it came to pass that when the king had made an end of these sayings and all the people were assembled together, they took their swords and all the weapons which were used for the shedding of man's blood, and they did bury them deep in the earth. It is entirely possible that this interesting incident could have served as the source of the bury the hatchet tradition of showing peace, which was a common practice among some of the tribes of American Indians when Columbus and other white men came to their lands. That was by Daniel Ludlow. Spencer Condy said, following Nephi's counsel to liken all scriptures unto us, we can use the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's as a metaphor for our own lives. When we become truly converted, the testimony of our conversion may well be born in our, in our burying deep in the earth our sharp tongues in lieu of sharp swords. Our post-conversion sanitary landfill might also be used to discard our hot tempers, our evil speech patterns, our penchant for off-color jokes, or ethnic epithets, our greediness, unkindness, and lack of compassion. Verse 18, And this they did, it being in their view a testimony to God and also to men, that they never would use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God, that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives. And rather than take away from a brother, they would give unto him. And rather than spend their days in idleness, they would labor abundantly with their hands. And thus we see, whenever we read, and thus we see, Mormon doesn't want us to miss the point. And thus we see, when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace or they buried their weapons of war for peace. I'm going to come back to that uh, last phrase in a minute. In the play A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More, who would soon have, who have his head removed because of a refusal to compromise his principles, said, When a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his own hands, like water, and if he opens his fingers, then he needn't hope to find himself again. Some have attended 
or some have attempted to extrapolate from this instance that this is the course, a course of conscientious objection that ought to be followed by those of the household of faith in all instances in which their lives and liberties are threatened by evil forces. But the larger context of this instance does not justify such an idea. As the story yet unfolds, it will be necessary for the anti-Nephi-Lehi's to abandon their lands and move in a body to that land of Jershon where they, shall be, where they can be protected by the Nephites. It will also be necessary for their sons who have not entered into the covenant that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have made to take up arms to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. Remember, that's going to be the 2,000 stripling warriors. Eventually, men and women must learn the lesson of the ages, a lesson stressed by Mormon just prior to his death, a message he could offer over a thousand years of Nephite perspective before him. Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war and delight no more in the shedding of blood and take them not again, save it be that God shall command you. Now back to the phrase uh, where he says, uh, thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace. Uh, I, I kind of think that that might have been a typographical error that uh, Mormon made in his, in his abridgment. Because right away he says, or they buried the weapons of war for peace. So I think as he's, he's engraving on the gold plates, uh, he says uh, they, they buried their weapons of peace. He probably went, oh, I didn't mean that. I got ahead of myself. And then he changes it to they buried their weapons of war for peace. Anyway, that's just my opinion. Could be totally the way he wanted to write it, but I don't think so. Verse 20. And it came to pass that their brethren, the Lamanites, made preparations for war and came up to the land of Nephi for the purpose of destroying the king and to place another in his stead and also of destroying the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi out of the land. Now, when the people saw that they were, they, they were coming against them, they went out to meet them and prostrated themselves before them to the earth and began to call in the name of the Lord. And thus they were in the attitude when the Lamanites began to fall upon them and began to slay them with the sword. And thus, without meeting any resistance, they did slay a thousand and five of them. And we know that they are blessed, for they have gone to dwell with their God. Now when the Lamanites saw that the brethren would not flee from the sword, neither would they turn aside to the right hand or to the left, but that they would lie down and perish and praised God even in the very act of perishing under the sword. Now when the Lamanites saw this, they did forbear from slaying them. And there were many whose hearts had swollen in them for those of their brethren who had fallen under the sword, for they repented of the things which they had done. And it came to pass that they threw down their weapons of war, and they would not take them again, for they were stung for the murders which they had committed. And they came down even as their brethren, relying upon the mercies of those whose arms were lifted to slay them. And it came to pass that the people of God were joined that day by more than the number who had been slain. And those who had been slain were righteous people, therefore we have no reason to doubt but what they were saved. When righteous people die, we have no reason to doubt but that they are saved, that is, they are heirs of the celestial kingdom. When the righteous, those true to their gospel covenants, pass from this life to the next, they are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. Since they have kept their second estate, the eternal promise is that they shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. Given then that there is no apostasy in paradise, all who obtain that station have the sure promise of celestial glory in the day of resurrection. That was by Milton McConkie. Number 27, and there was not a wicked man slain among them, but there were more than a thousand brought to the knowledge of the truth. Thus we see, here's another Mormon point, that the Lord worketh in many ways to the salvation of his people.
Now the greatest number of those of the Lamanites who slew so many of their brethren were Amalekites and Amulonites, the greatest number of whom were after the orders, order of the Nehors. Now among those who joined the people of the Lord, there were none who were Amalekites or Amulonites or who were, were of the order of Nehor, but they were actual descendants of Laman and Lemuel. And thus we can plainly discern Again, here's Mormon's point, that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had a great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than those than though they had never known these things. Uh, so let me just read you a couple things here by Joseph Smith. He says, strange as it may appear at first thought, yet it is no less strange than true that notwithstanding all the professed determination to live godly, apostates after turning from the faith of Christ, unless they have speedily repented, have sooner or later fallen into the snares of the wicked one and have been left destitute of the Spirit of God to manifest their wickedness in the eyes of multitudes. From apostates, the faithful have received the severest persecutions. Judas was rebuked and immediately betrayed the Lord into the hands of his enemies because Satan entered into him. There is a superior intelligence bestowed upon such as obey the gospel with full purpose of heart, which if sinned against, the apostate is left naked and destitute of the spirit of God. And he is in truth nigh unto cursing and his end is to be burned. When once that light which was in them is taken from them, they become as much, much darkened as they were previously enlightened. And then no marvel if all their power should be enlisted against the truth and they, Judas-like, seek the destruction of those who were their greatest benefactors. Also, after a man has sinned against the Holy Ghost, there is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him, and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. And from that time, he begins to be an enemy. This is the case with many apostates of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When a man begins to be an enemy to this work, he hunts me, he seeks to kill me, and never ceases to thirst for my blood. He gets the spirit of the devil, the same spirit that they had who crucified the Lord of life, the same spirit that sins against the Holy Ghost. You cannot save such persons. You cannot bring them to repentance. They make open war like the devil, and awful is the consequences. That was Joseph Smith. Joseph Feeling Smith said, The testimony of the Spirit is so great, and the impressions and revelations of divine truth so forcefully revealed, that there comes to the recipient a conviction of the truth that cannot be forgotten. Therefore, when a person once enlightened by the Spirit, so that he receives knowledge that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God in the flesh, then turns away and fights the Lord and his work, he does so against the light and testimony he has received by the power of God. Therefore, he has resigned himself to evil knowingly. Therefore, Jesus said there is no forgiveness for such a person. Elder Maxwell said, Then there are the dissenters who leave the church, either formally or informally, but who cannot leave it alone. Usually anxious to please worldly galleries, they are critical for at least condescending towards the brethren, or at least condescending towards the brethren. They, they not only seek to study the ark, but also on occasion give it a hard shove. Often having been taught the same true doctrines as the faithful, they have nevertheless moved in the direction of dissent. They have minds hardened by pride. When the prophet Joseph Smith had ended telling how he had been treated by apostates, one brother said that he would never do that, upon which the prophet said, you don't know what you would do. No doubt these men once thought as you do, but before you joined the church, you stood on neutral ground. But once you went off of that, uh, then you became in uh, one side or the other. I bear testimony to the truth of these things and that uh, that uh, as we try to become converted, that, that we will never be uh, 
swayed away from that and that we will stay true to the true to the faith and true to our testimony. I bear testimony to these things and say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you like this podcast, share it with others.